The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Ender's Game meets Mean Girls meets Pokemon Go and Tinker Returns. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, we bring you Josh Hayes' conversation with Sean Patrick Hazlitt and the contributors to Weird World War Four. Now, savvy listeners may be asking themselves, hey, did we have World War III and nobody told me? Well, Weird World War Four is the companion volume to a book we bought out sometime back called, you guessed it, Weird World War Three. In this latest anthology, that is Weird World War Four, science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors ask themselves what the war after the next might be like with surprising and exciting results, which you'll hear about in just a moment. But first, the news. The April hardcovers are in. Let's take a look. First up, Into the Real by John Ringo and Lydia Scherer. Lynn Raven may be the boss master of Warmonger 2050 with her online persona of Larry the Snake. But when the CEO of Tsunami Entertainment personally asks her as a favor to beta test a new augmented reality game, she has to face her greatest fear, going outside and dealing with, well, people. As she becomes more immersed in the game, the stakes rise and so do the obstacles. Strife between teammates, a ruthless rival team, and these strange glitches that make it seem like the game algorithm, or maybe game AI, has it in for her. Now she has to face a new fear. Is she willing to step into the real to win the future she's always wanted? And Tinker returns in Harbinger by Wynne Spencer. Single-handedly, she'd managed to accidentally change her species, rip a hole in the fabric of reality, kidnap a major USA city, fall off the planet, crash a spaceship into Turtle Creek, kill a dragon, but now Tinker faces her most dangerous challenge yet. The war against the Oni heats to a flashpoint even as Tinker learns that the enemy has a dangerous new weapon, the Nocta. What's more, the Stone Clan has sent its most famous warlords, the Harbingers, to take control of the Allied war effort. Are these elves friends or foes? Tinker's newfound baby siblings are up for grabs. The babies, though, are wood sprites and aren't going to take things lying down. Team Mischief, go! That's Into the Real by John Ringo and Lydia Scherer and Harbinger by Wynne Spencer, out now in hardcover. And stay tuned to the Bain Free Radio Hour. We'll be featuring both books on upcoming podcasts. This month marks the long-awaited return of Tinker in Harbinger. To celebrate, we're offering discounts on all Wynne Spencer backlist titles. From past entries in the Elf Home series to standalone novels, there's something for everyone. From now until the end of April, get $1 off 
all Win Spencer ebook backlist titles. And don't forget to pick up the latest entry in the Elf Home series, Harbinger, while you're at it. Sale ends April 30th, 2022, and these discounts are good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. All right, uh, welcome to the interview portion of the Bane Free Radio Hour. I am Josh Hayes, your host, and today we have Sean Hazlett, TC McCarthy, Michael Z. Williamson, and Laird Barron. We're talking about we're Weird World War Four, and I dare you to say it three times real fast. It's like I guarantee you, you won't. Yeah, I was like trying before and didn't work out. Uh, so we're going to talk about everybody's stories. They're fantastic. Uh, Michael's was hilarious. Um, Laird's was very creepy, and and TC, I my my spine tingled just a little bit. Uh, uh, it was it was amazing. So uh, I I appreciated all the stories, and I love them. Uh, and and here pretty soon we'll talk about each and every one of them. Before then, though, uh, Sean, you're kind of the creator of the series, the the world weird world war series. So can you talk about this fourth volume and kind of what are your thoughts behind it? Yeah. So. Um, interestingly, it's actually the second volume. So the, the first the first volume was Weird World War Three. That was meant to be an alternate history slash alternate futures of a conflict between the U.S. and Soviet Union, uh, okay. generally without nuclear weapons. Mm. And you know, for, to kind of simplify things, think Stephen King meets Tom Clancy. That was kind of the the logline for that. Gotcha. This this version, so I went back to Bain and I actually pitched Weird World War One and Weird World War Two, and uh, you know for good reason the you know, the publisher said you know a lot of that's been overdone and you know it might not necessarily be differentiated enough in the marketplace, and you know I think those are all fair points. At some point though, I definitely want to do those two. Yeah. So what what they proposed instead was how about weird world war four and i'm like well let me think about it and then the first thing that hits everybody's mind is einstein's you know famous quote about you know i don't know what weapons world war three will be fought with but i you know, i do know world war four will be fought with sticks and stones or rocks right there's there's a lot of um actually misquotations there but i cover that in my or, or ink so so the, the conceit behind this particular volume is what is the war beyond the next war look like and there's a lot fewer constraints than there was in the first anthology so it doesn't have to be with soviets it doesn't have to be um with anybody in particular the only thing that has to be true is or the things that have to be true are number one there has to have been a third world war and then number two uh there has to be a fourth world war and then number three the fourth world war has to have some sort of weird uh, element that's that's incorporated into that and the other thing that's 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 worth noting is um you know i i, I generally don't try to seek um you know strong ideological content but i would say there's four or five stories that you know have have a thread of that on on both sides right so um, Nick, I tried to get Nick on, on this call, but he's, you know, he's got other commitments today, but Nick Mamatas has a story that's, you know, full communism in space, right? 
Um, then there's, you know, Torgerson's story, which is, you know, mentioned in the Publishers Weekly Review. I'm not going to say much on it here. Um, and then there's a kind of another story that has kind of an anti-Trump vein, which is kind of Weston Oaks' story. And then you have Michael Z. Williamson's story, which <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> let's just say there's, 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 there's stuff to offend every single party here. So I'm, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it works. I'm actually um, surprised that <clears throat> Publishers Weekly kind of actually acknowledged that. And then that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to uh, be the guy who can have like a Brad Torgerson and a Nick Mamatas in the same volume. Right. It's just, it's all about ideas. And, um, you know, if you don't like a particular story, you can move on. If you do, then, um, anyway, I just want to put that out there, you know, when we start so that, uh, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what we're solving for. But in terms of, you know, I don't want to go too much into TC Laird and, and, and Mike's stories, but they all, all very different in many ways i know laird his his story and his character in his story and hopefully he'll say more about it is you know a, a, like a character that runs through all of his or many of his short stories a very you know very um i don't want to say famous but i would yeah i should say famous famous character and he'll, he'll say more about it tc's is just creepy yeah um like <laughs> so is laird's actually but they're they're, they're they're creepy in different in different ways and then and then mike's mike does a lot of uh does a lot of poking and uh, you know he takes current sociological trends and and takes them to you know extremes to to relatively uh satisfying comedic effect so with that uh josh i'll send it back to you well i mean it's interesting that you said uh you know that you point out the the uh collective the, the political differences in some of the stories right and and that you're able to collect from both sides and i think that's great that you can have an anthology that that takes those stories and gives them out and and lets the reader decide and and lets the reader enjoy but also the the content of the stories is wildly different too just in the three that that we have here today you have uh funny uh you have very creepy uh and you also have very wild slash creepy and to have those all in one anthology it's not like everybody is doing the same story over and over and over again it's it's very different and um that i think that really makes a really good anthology to have and a really to give you a sense of the the breadth of ideas and even formats so john langan has a story at the end that's a play it's like a post-apocalyptic arthurian play so nice. it, it gives you like there's a lot of creativity in this volume because sometimes when you when you put down somewhat odd constraints that that I had it forces people to get really creative. Well, let's talk about uh, one of those. Uh, TC, we'll start with with yours. Uh, 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 the the beginning uh, of your story really kind of starts out. Um, uh, kind of uh, fun almost uh kind of enjoyable and then it very very quickly takes a a left turn to albuquerque if you will um can you talk about a little bit about what your idea was for the story and then uh, yeah we'll go from there yeah so um i have to i have to kind of uh admit to something here um i had forgotten that i agreed to do the anthology for sean <laughs> 
<laughs> and so he reminded me, um, and uh, there wasn't much time. So I sat down and in a, in a few days just worked, not nonstop, but any free time I had was dedicated to writing this story. And um, I drew from a couple of different places. First of all, I, I ignored the rule or I ignored the premise that um, uh, there's a fourth world war. This one takes place after the third world war and um, kind of at, at what would be the beginning of the fourth world war. And um, so apologies, Sean, I broke your rule. Um, but, works. Uh, <laughs> yeah. works. Good. Okay. Yeah. And um, uh, I remember, I don't know, I don't remember much about my father, but I remember he was a civil rights attorney working for the highway department, federal highway administration. And um, one of the, one of the things he used to talk about, he used to travel to Hopi reservations, Navajo reservations to try and get them to join the work crews for the um, interstate highways to maintain them and stuff. And um, they used to hate him coming because he was a government guy. <laughs> and uh, so he used to, he used to tell me how, you know, their attitude was, Oh, great. Here's the government again to help, to help us. <laughs> that sounds like my wife who's Choctaw. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a deep distrust of the, the federal government, and rightfully so. One can certainly understand, given their history. So um, I kind of wove that in. And also, I, I enjoy, you know, Sean and I talk um, quite frequently about paranormal stuff. And um, I really enjoy, I'd say as a hobby, but also kind of as a student, enjoy, you know, digging into to ghost stories and um, prophecy and all, all sorts of different areas. And um, so one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is this Hopi prophecy of, of uh, Blue Kachina and what it could mean. And so that was kind of the starting point was uh, fusing, fusing that prophecy with some of the stories my, my father had told me about his experience um, with, uh, with Hopi Indians. Can you explain, uh, just kind of talk about what that prophecy is? Yeah. So if I remember correctly, they have a prophecy about um, something called the blue Kachina, which is uh, supposedly a blue star that will show up um, and uh, kind of, um, you know, as a warning that the world is about to end. So it's a, it's a prophecy about the apocalypse. And um, th I mean, that's it in a nutshell. It's been a while since I've looked at it. I'm trying to remember details, but um, they may come to me as we, as we talk. Well, I like the um, the going into kind of the exploration aspect of your story, or the you know the, the guys going down on the the asteroid and 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 kind of looking around it, and then it quickly becomes a mystery of what happened to everybody, and um, and then it, it kind of turns into almost like a horror esque, like uh, uh, not as uh, not a zombie per se, but but uh, of this creature unknown something that has started to kill everybody and and you know now they're they're wanting to get out of here and and through no fault of their own stuff happens and then the the story takes a drastic turn and and very kind of a really gory turn at the, at the the very end um is that that vision of how that story ends kind of uh concurrent with your vision of of the way you see the, the prophecy calling about the end of the world? Nope. 
No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I um, I kind of wanted to uh, deviate from that because I wasn't sure. You know, whenever I sit down and try and think of this short story idea, I always imagine that everybody's written about the ideas that I come up with. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, my first kind of thought once I settled on the concept was, all right, I need to now get away from standard interpretations of what the blue Kachina is and come up with some sort of invention that, um, that, you know, hopefully fingers crossed, nobody else has really kind of, um, kind of written about. I'm sure somewhere, somebody in the past has come very close to my plot line, but, you know, I certainly couldn't think of anybody you had off the top of my head. One of the things I really like about short stories is the, uh, the ability to do kind of an ambiguous ending and you, 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 you really, I mean, it's, it's concrete what happens to the characters in the story, but outside of that, the reader is kind of left to what happens next. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Is that, did you set that up purposefully or? Oh yeah. Yeah. I wanted an open ending ended ending, uh, so to speak in terms of um you know the kinds of short stories that i enjoy the most are where you you get you you have a firm grasp of 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 what's happened um the challenges that your protagonist has faced and uh whether or not he or she has overcome those challenges um but then I, the the stories that really stick with me are the ones that um you know remind the reader that there's also a bigger context and that those events that transpire in that little little capsule of a short story are going to have a major impact on um, on the rest of the world, and um, give them just enough kind of um, information so that he or she can can think about it and um, and kind of put down the story and, and and spend a lot of time thinking about oh my gosh what would happen if. And is this connected to any of the other writing you've done? No, no, this is this is purely purely separate and independent. Uh, before we move on, uh, just to kind of give you a, a little stage time here, to, what are you working on right now? Are you working on anything that's that's so, going to? So I've got um, two books out right now with Bain, and one of them just went to um, from trade paperback to mass market paperback. It's a far future space opera series. Uh, the first book was Tiger Burning. And the second book is Tiger Bright, and it's essentially a um, a uh, you know an alien invasion. Uh, but then the aliens left Earth mysteriously, and why they left Earth is is uh, very concerning to those in the know on Earth, and um, and what it means for the future. And so the stories take place in a setting where uh, mankind knows humans know that in a hundred years something really awful is going to happen and they've only got that much time to get ready. Interesting. Very cool. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, Michael's story then while we're going around the room here, triplicate, um, is, uh, hilarious. Um, and it's, I, I think it's probably one of the only stories that I've read that maintains a kind of tongue-in-cheek vibe throughout the entire narrative like some stories maybe have one or two kind of aha i see what you did there references but uh this story is is really chock full of them can you talk about that a little bit 
Uh, it's a concept I had years back uh, before I actually started getting published, and um, I, I had a really good outline, and I had certainly a considerable amount of content there, <clears throat> but um, it wasn't nearly at the level it was. I handed it over to uh, Freddie, and he sort of ran with it, and I was basically hanging onto the reins for the ride, and periodically, going, hold, hold on, hold on, let me catch up here, <clears throat> and then uh, editing what uh, he contributed. <clears throat> And the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's intended to mock everything. You know, you know, people talk about how you and others have said some of it is, uh, you know, over the top ridiculous. But then, so was Demolition Man when it first hit the screen. True and very true. <laughs> well, and and that's actually a really uh, a really cool comparison because you have like you know the three seashells with nobody knows anything about and then every time he curses he gets the the fine and and you right know, i mean you've you've done the the social credit thing which i thought was uh hilarious but then uh you know just the the, the just the idea of having a world war through paperwork was and hilarious the, um, to me the scene with the uh cranes the, the whooping cranes shutting the flight line down yeah um so that actually happened. That, that, that that's a real world incident. Nice. Uh, the fl flight line during an exercise was shut down because an endangered whooping crane was. You mean you mean the, you mean the animal persons? Animal persons, yes. <laughs> yes. Animal persons, yes. Well, I I think it was interesting because, like I said, the the entire story is kind of filled with these knocks and jabs at kind of <clears throat> present day just. Uh, wokeness if you if you mind the expression um and like you said there's other there's other points of view in the anthology but this you definitely read this and you definitely will see the jabs at uh prone i mean j the the opening email that he sends and then the, the <laughs> ps after i knew after that i was like i was sold for this run <laughs> Well, it also it also mocks military bureaucracy too. Like, yes. like that's a huge portion of it. You know, like I mean, especially if you've spent any time in the military, it's like, <laughs> we, like we both did. And then um, Freddie spent a bunch of time working with other agencies, yeah. uh, State Department, Interior, EPA, and you can see all that. <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> interesting because I I did uh, some time in the Air Force, and then I did uh, about. 12 years as a cop and the 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 line you can't fight in uh this is a war teleconference just <laughs> I, I fell out like that was amazing you have warriors talking about these things and they're arguing back and forth and then they're and that was straight out of uh dr strange love yes you can't gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room yeah it, yeah it definitely has a very dr strange love uh feel to it for sure <laughs> yeah how many uh, did you go in? Um, I, I know that you had a co co-author as well for mm -hmm. the story, but but did you go in like with certain things in mind uh, in terms of the the tongue in cheek nature of the narrative that you wanted to put Absolutely. in and fit the story around? <clears throat> um, I mean, the story basically wrote itself. Once you have the the you know the, this is a war and the war is being fought literally with paperwork. Yeah, you know they're literally flying in a transport aircraft, cargo aircraft full of documents to fight this war. <clears throat> so, you know, from that, you obviously get RSIs, uh, you've had stress injuries, you get uh, people running out of ink, you get, um, yeah, and then uh, I don't drink coffee, but uh, Freddie does. Know. So, oh my God, we're out of coffee. It's like, <laughs> that's... Uh, the uh, the, the, the fill out this form, what's this form for to get more forms was... Yep. 
<laughs> amazing. Uh, uh, because every I, I, one I, of those I, things, <laughs> like they sound, they seem ridiculous, but a lot of the things, a lot of the running jokes that you have in there, they're they're true. Like and the the nature of the idea is true. Like the I, I uh, enlisted in '85, and they were just starting to computerize stuff, and they had all these obviously dot matrix printed forms that specified at the bottom computer generated uh -huh. and then uh, engineer units so we'd go over to supply our, our particular supply sub element and we'd grab a box of screws and some wire connectors and go fix something and they decided well this was being wasteful and some of it was winding up being used for side jobs in the civilian world so you had to have either a work order or a job order <clears throat> specifying the number of screws you needed so we'd write down we need we'd write down we need a box <laughs> and then it was um tractor feed paper uh self carbon the stuff that uh does its uh self imprinting for for copies it was three thick <clears throat> it would <clears throat> print up one print the next two pages and then print up a third blank page so they'd have to tear it off and then manually crank it back <clears throat> and waste a page every time they printed out a an invoice. <clears throat> you know, so I, I, my career started with that and got to... Like, and isn't it interesting that for 30 years, uh, all government agencies, uh, military and police included, have been going paperless? And I and I think that the, the, the funny thing for that is that the more that we go paperless, the more paperwork they generate. Uh, my wife's IT forensics, and the hilarious thing for both of us is the number of people who don't realize that their texts, emails, and IMs are logged. Mm. You know, it, it can be recovered. Whatever you said can be recovered. Right. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, like I said it before, I think the the interesting thing about your your story is that it's that there are several parts that people will read and go this just can't happen but the people in the know that have been there will read it and laugh at it because it's funny but also laugh at it because it's true i've had that with most with um reviews for most of my work mm. oh this is so ridiculous that would never happen and then six months later it's in the news or um <laughs> yeah um for the weapons civilians were very um horrified by the training process i had it was ridiculously brutal and couple of uh, seals and a couple of special forces guys said, so you dialed that down for the civilians didn't you it's like yeah uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so what do you have on the uh the, the production queue right now <sighs> well, well um so i because you just had uh uh what was the book you just had come out that was um, um that was now this is them the yes second time travel yeah yeah i am working on the third one i've got um and it suddenly got a lot more complicated, which is really cool, but will mean, you know, more work. Um, I'm doing a Black Tide Rising with Ringo. I've got two of my own on spec on the back burner. And I'm for a while, I've been contracted for a fourth Ripple Creek, which will have its own, not quite that level of snark, but we'll have some snark. <clears throat> but I'm tied up dealing with kids. Uh, a friend of mine uh, died last year uh, with no will, although we got that sorted out and combination hoarder and collector so after we've thrown out literally 16 roll-off dumpsters of trash from two houses <clears throat> there's wow 
uh, tens of thousands of anime discs, autographed sci-fi books, exotic uh, firearms that were loaned to the Fort Harris Museum, stuff like that. We we're trying to sort through for his family and get sold. That's been taking up uh, several hours a week. Well, and you've done a number of anthologies also uh, where yes. you've kind of, and I've actually been in one of your anthologies, uh, Battle Luna, but it was mm -hmm. it nice to be on, is it always nice to be on the end where you don't have to do the curating and you could just write a single story and <clears throat> send it in? Uh, yes, but on the other hand, it's very rewarding to edit and mm. put a, a project together, especially the um, uh, uh, Resistance, where we had a unified timeline and all the stories oh, yeah. followed both the you know, sequentially and interspersed. I'm not doing that again, though. That was a lot of <laughs> <laughs> Anthologies are tough, for sure. <clears throat> Uh, well, Laird, let's talk about your story, the the big whimper. Uh, Sean mentioned uh, earlier that you've kind of got a recurring character in in Rex and the the main character story, and the 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 format of your story was interesting. The way it, it starts out and then goes into narrative and then goes back to kind of a uh, a system type readout deal. Um, tell us about the kind of the origin of this story and and your reoccurring character, Rex. Oh, thanks for uh, having me on. It's a pleasure to be on with you, gentlemen. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, Rex is, has been in, I've written probably five or six stories about Rex at this point, and he has appeared in multiple stories uh, over the years. That's sort of something I've been playing with is all my characters are rapidly living and dead within the context are becoming recurring characters. I've been playing with the idea of time uh, being a everything occurring simultaneously essentially and th this story sort of plays with that on the that, that's sort of the framework of the story uh or at least the underpinnings of it that the readout it's a quantum signal and it's occurring before after and during the, the events of the story uh and to tc's point this is kind of i don't think i broke the rule sean had but it's certainly a, more of an aftermath uh world war four and sort of the mm. consequences or at least if not the consequences the 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 mental the psychological and physical landscape of what of what existence is going to be like after that but rex is sort of an eternal if not a champion uh he's sort of an eternal recurrence i've killed him off in every almost every story i've ever written about him um and he wakes up again and, and uh has to sort of uh, sort of come to terms with that, that, that he is is reliving, you know, various moments of of reality, and they're happening simultaneously. There's a bifurcation of his personality. He initially he was, you know, especially uh, bred and trained canine, war canine. That something that probably is within our grasp to create at this point, but that he had somehow been fused with various levels of technology. His consciousness had been fused with various levels of technology over the centuries, culminating in what uh, the, the science fiction stories I've written about him, the far future stories where he's almost has a super, a split super consciousness. There's the canine consciousness, which would be almost equivalent of a human intelligence and this sort of uh, computer that exists almost in another plane of, plane of reality. But unfortunately there's been damage done to him. And so it's, it's almost a split personality and he, he sort of battles for control of his soul, as it were. 
the uh, the interesting nature of an uh, schizophrenic, insane war dog with <coughs> capabilities to destroy a world is a really interesting uh, dynamic to play with. And you had a lot of good uh, imagery, I think, in your story, um, starting out kind of where he's talking to the the other entity, but you don't kind of give vo um, explanation to that. It just kind of happens. And then the 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 meeting of the the princess and and that I love that visual um, uh, in that uh, that whole scene, that whole interaction that happens there. Can you talk about kind of the creation of these different levels of of creatures and uh kind of almost societies that you've have apparently grown up after this war did is that something that also carries on in your other works or was this something you just created for this story no i've mentioned it actually uh in a couple of the other stories that are specifically about rex as opposed to rex appearing as a side character it's very similar setup it's it's far in the future um, and basically humanity is, has been wiped out except possibly for the reemergence of some kind of proto, uh, homo sapiens type creature. And, and one of the things I've, I've, I've sort of, a, uh, sort of fascinates me is that Rex obviously was, was bred and desi designed and bred to wage war, but on behalf of humanity you know, as, as a, offensive machinery but also as a protector you know the best right. defense is, is a good offense uh but now that he's left to his own devices and mad you know, insane and damaged uh, all these you know doggy you know a nuclear uh, a nuclear a sapient nuclear sentient nuclear weapon with dementia you know it's probably not <laughs> it might be copywriting yeah. um, but you know would in some of the stories I've written about him, he this one kind of sort of touches on it, but not not so directly. It's just that um, you know, is mankind even worth saving anymore? His directive doesn't even apply. Like, you know, we've come to this because of uh, ourselves. You know, because of because of human activity. Do you know is is the world better off with without us? And I don't directly answer that question, Rex, but he's very conflicted about it. He, you know, he he explores the, the possibilities. Um, but uh, the, the idea of like super, super insects or super uh, animal species, I've played with that in the past. But, you know, a lot of this is just me. Uh, when I write these Rex stories, they are part of my overarching universe that I've created. But this is where I wear my influences quite uh, blatantly and ecstatically. I, I loved Fred Saberhagen's Berserker uh, stuff. You know, the idea of the world destroying uh entities that could be boiled down to like a humanoid figure uh raj zelazny touched on that there was a, uh, uh road marks there was a creature uh that, that was actually in the, the you know the physiology of a human being but was actually a doomsday device that had been deactivated and abandoned on on earth uh and so i've always i've always liked the idea of the doomsday device distilled down to a dog or a person or an ob you know a, a innocuous object doctor who you know the whole dalek they look like vacuum cleaners you know right. suction attachment and yet they're these these dread these dreadnoughts um world annihilating universe annihilating uh, dreadnoughts and so there's a lot of influence i get to play with all my uh i was a big heinlein fan when i was growing up arthur c Clarke, clifford d Semek, 
And these overtly science fiction stories that feature Rex are simply my chance to um, kind of play with, to play with that, you know, to sort of pay it back as it were. Well, and you, you kind of, it's, it's really cool to have that kind of dichotomy of the, like, it's, this is a dog. It's a, it's like you even say in the story, it's man's best friend. And, and, you know, most people think dogs and cuddly and, and playful. And, and you even have some references uh, that are dog, like legitimately dog, like, like, taking a nap and putting my my snout under my tail and and not doing anything else uh and we can all kind of visualize that um but then you have that juxtaposed against the the world ender and everything that happens at the end of the story and it's a really interesting take i think on on that that kind of character um do, so with your your connected stories and the the time is a ring aspect of of everything uh do you have i mean as far as i know these are connected short stories do you have plans on expanding this into kind of a novel universe or what are your thoughts on that uh actually i've talked to a publisher a few years ago about doing a trilogy about and basically taking this story and, and melding it with some of the other stories i've written about rex and turning it into a almost like a mosaic novel hmm. and so that that could happen I'm also working on um, a dark fantasy science fiction setting. So I, it, it would be kind of in the classic vein of like Liber and Vance and uh, Zelazny, where it's the science fiction purists would clutch their pearls because it's not really science fiction. And the, fan, the fantasists are like, but you've got science fiction in my fantasy. Um, you know, uh, and I've been, I've been messing with that and Rex and a lot of the characters actually, including the villains, appear throughout that. And I'm working on a novel kind of kind of based on that but it's it's set definitely in a this quasi dark ages uh fairy tales uh, north american setting so we'll see how that goes is that the only thing you're working on now or do you have any other any other projects that you're well uh, just finished a at least the first arc of a crime series is trilogy it's called uh, blood standard was the first one the re most recent one is worse angels uh, i'm working on this dark fantasy science fiction novel horror it's kind of a combination of those of those elements. Um, lots of short fiction. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm getting ready to turn in a, a contemporary horror uh, collection to uh, to my agent. I just have to work on a couple a couple elements of it. But and that one's you know crime, horror, mystery, thriller, all sort of bolted uh, into horror. Uh, and so that that'll get turned in soon. And I'm working on another collection, which is pretty close to being done, which is a, a dark fantasy collection which is a mix of horror and science fiction and and high fantasy in the vein of carl carl edward wagner and, and like i said liber and zelazny and those guys i i'm kind of at the stage in my career where uh I, I feel like i'm i'm able to take all the influences that i grew up with we were i was raised in the wilderness up in alaska spent a good section about 10 years of my life my dad was in the marine corps and when he came back when I was about seven, eight years old, he decided that moving us off to the the wilderness, uh, the outback of Alaska, you know, was something he wanted to do. And so uh, that's where we were. And we didn't have much outlet, we were, you know, one room cabin, uh, root cellar, no electricity. So I did a lot of reading. And my, luckily, my mom, she liked everything from Barbara Cartland to Louis L'Amour to Robert Heinlein. Uh, and I was able to write. But I, I really owe a lot. Uh, of getting through my my early years to all these to all these classic 
science fiction authors, mystery and, and crime authors. And so I feel like I'm at a point in my career now after having been in publishing for about 22, 23 years that I can just sort of, I've established myself, my identity, and now I'm, I'm, I'm at a stage where I'm, I'm, I'm playing in the, in the sandboxes of the people who influence me. Oh, that's very cool. Uh, I've got a question that kind of uh, teeters to the, the the writers that may be watching the podcast, and and this is for everybody, and we can kind of go around the room and and maybe talk about it. But uh, you know the 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 differences between novel writing and short stories are are very very. Um, uh, I mean, you still have to have plot, you still have to have good characters, but but keeping uh, a a short story really well contained and uh, not just a a chunk of a bigger work is kind of challenging i think for for most authors um maybe we'll start with sean as kind of the editor of this and and having gone through it a, a lot of short stories from the editorial side what do you look at as the biggest challenges for writing and, and finishing a good wholly contained short story uh, so I would say I would go back to kind of Edgar Allan Poe, right? And he always said that a short story should have a singular singular effect, achieve a singular effect. Now, that's definitely for somebody who's a little bit less experienced. That's a good thing to aim for. As writers become better, I think the best writers are able to have that thread, but they're also able to layer other things above and below that at the subconscious level that are mutually reinforcing, <clears throat> right? That, that um, help with that set, uh, central theme. <clears throat> what I've also seen is that, you know, there's obviously lots of different types of writers, but um, there are some writers who do really well when you give them very tight constraints. Like it's almost as if by constraining them, you unlock their creativity. So, you know, if you're a new writer and you're stuck, um, you know, this might not work for everybody, but if you constrain yourself to certain aspects that you want to achieve in the story, you might end up writing something better. For me, for myself, I tend to write better stories when I have certain constraints. Now, there's stuff that I just, I don't think I'm, in, I don't think I'm capable of writing. Like if somebody said, you know, write me an optimistic hope punk like story. I just, I wouldn't even try. Right. I, I'm just not, you know, constrained to do that. The other thing too, that I noticed is when you put out these, you know, these constraints, people will surprise you. Like I told you the three degrees of freedom that each of these stories had, and you get wildly different results and mm. they're all really good. Um, and then, and then the last piece is just don't be afraid to write about things that uh, you might think are taboo or, or, you know, difficult to, to stomach because those are the things that get people talking. Will everybody like it? No. Right. But, uh, at the end of the day, that's where you see true, you know, true genius where people go where, uh, everybody else is not necessarily going. So I don't know if that's helpful, but. Oh, definitely. I would look at it. Uh, TC, do you have thoughts on that, on the the nature of short stories, and maybe that maybe some challenges between going between novels and short stories, or for you personally? Yeah, I um, so I wrote kind of um, started writing when I was really really young, and um, I I I can kind of relate to the story of living in Alaska uh, in a cabin with only books to read, 
because, um, which is a great story, by the way. And um, my mom, we were living in the Bay Area for a period of time, for almost 10 years. And um, my mom got rid of our TV. You know, it was the 70s. It was California. And, um, you know, it was um, kind of a different time back then. Mm. And got rid of our TV. And it, what that did was force me to start reading, um, you know, just like what was described earlier. Anything and everything just to kill time. And um, so, you know, along the way, I started writing and I was told you need to start with short stories and um, and then eventually, you know, try a novel. So that's what I did. And um, short story after short story after short story. This is before the Internet. So I'd go to the library and get the most recent edition of I forgot what it was called now. Uh, Publishers something. Um, that had the the addresses for the magazines. The big thick one. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Writers market. Writers, writers market. market. Thank there you. you. Go. Yeah. And um, you know, I'd send them out, and a few months later, I'd get the rejection. And um, <laughs> eventually, after after doing that for years, I convinced myself I couldn't write. Mm. And um, and then one day I started again, and um, instead of writing a short story, I wrote a novel. And for me, it was it was as if the light bulb went on and a door opened. And um, I realized at the end of that process, after I had gotten an agent and gotten my first book published, I realized that, um, you know, I, I can't remember if Sean just said this, um, but <clears throat> for me, you know, just, I'm speaking personally, not not for anybody else. I, I find it much more difficult to write short stories. I'm really not uh, built for short stories. I like to be able to go out in several different directions and explore multiple veins in depth and and have lots of different things going on. Uh, Not to say that you can't do that in a short story. I can't. Um, It's just not in me per se. Um, So now, obviously, I I can write short stories. I'm in Sean's anthology. I've published short stories elsewhere. Uh, but it takes a lot more work for me, um, I feel like, to get a story that's palatable um, mm. for an audience. The interesting thing about this experience is what I already said, which was I forgot and I had a short time span to write this thing. And I think this is one of the better stories I've ever written. So maybe because I tend to over complexify things, you know, yeah. um, maybe that's the answer for me is just to, you know, to say, I'm going to write this in two or three days and that's it and walk away. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's definitely for me easier to write a novel than it is a short story. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I started do kind of the same thing you did where writing short stories and, and not getting anywhere and then starting writing novels. And now I, I've written several short stories now. And, but I, I, I think after flexing my muscles with the novels and being able to do what you're saying, like go out and explore things. And then now I'm just training other muscles to write the short stories and becoming a better writer, I think because of it. Um, Michael, what are your thoughts on, on writing short stories? Your, your novels are particularly long. Uh, and uh, um, it's, uh, it's interesting when I see authors that, that write really long novels, but then are also able to come up and, and present short stories that are, well, passable as, as as whole short stories and not simple chunks. 
Um, similar to TC, I was advised by Stephen Barnes to write short stories and get them published in the magazines and <clears throat> get known. <clears throat> and I kept getting rejections. And uh, I, I'd already finished Freehold uh, and uh, you know trying to get noticed. And finally, I, I was complaining about uh, you know, the rejection letters were, uh, thank you for submitting such and such. Alas, it doesn't work for us. Like, <laughs> <clears throat> what's with the, you know, the, the fake drama? Just, you know, you didn't like it. It doesn't work for us. <clears throat> and uh, I was on Bain's forum and uh, Jim said, well, maybe they're being alliterative. Alack, alas, alay. He did like an entire paragraph of that. And he said, that said, send me one single chapter or something you're working on. I'll take a look at it. And nine months later, we bought the novel. Um, Nice. I mean, novels and short stories are different because in a short story you have to have the character, the plot, and the setting all condensed into a few thousand words. You, you can't really do world building. That was part of the problem I was having. I was trying to do world building in short stories. It has to be assumed. It has to be presented in such a way that the uh, the reader can grasp it innately without having to have uh, a lengthy uh, discourse. Uh, so learn, uh, and uh, that came. Uh, I, I got all that sorted out when uh, John Ringo asked me for a story for Citizens, his anthology, and I had one that I thought would work. And I actually went back and gutted two thirds of it, where I was trying to do world building, condensed it down, <clears throat> rewrote it, and turned it into a cohesive whole. <clears throat> so I, I, I can do short stories. Um, novels are uh, no novels are longer, but they're intellectually easier. You mm. just write and write and write and write and write. You know what right. you got to say, and then there's no. You know, if it takes another ten thousand words, it takes ten thousand words. Of course, you have to make it interesting. <laughs> it has right. to be exciting, but <clears throat> but you're not limited by uh, by uh, real estate. Well, uh, Laird, you've kind of already kind of presented your your case for short stories and and almost kind of established yourself as a short story writer as as a uh in in your f area um can you think of a challenge that that maybe you've you've looked at over the the, the career of writing these that that you would maybe give as a tip to anybody looking to start writing uh short fiction well i i'm not really sure about that because it, it all comes back to, you know, especially listening to the other authors on here talking about their perspective. Uh, my belief is that it's, there are objective realities about writing and the different modes of writing or art in general. Uh, and if there's not objective reality, there's certainly a consensus uh, opinion about how things work. But I will say this, that in a lot of ways writing talking about whether short stories are easier than novels or vice versa is a lot like saying, well, if you're of a certain height and you got legs like tree trunks versus you're long, angular, and skinny, you might want to be a marathon runner or a sprinter. Uh, if you talk to somebody with thick legs and a powerful, you know, uh, broad hips, a narrow waist, wide shoulders, they're going to like sprinting. They're going to say, well, well, hell, that's easy. It's way easier than like jogging for 26 miles. And the, and the marathon runner is going to be like, I, yeah, I don't even get warmed up for the first eight miles. <laughs> yeah. So, and 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 so there are best practices. There are things that I think that uh, points of commonality. You eventually have to put your ass in the seat. You eventually have to get your quill out or your 
or your iPad or whatever it is you, you use or your, your secretary takes diction and you have to create. But mm -hmm. what you're good at may not, you know, my advice necessarily isn't going to isn't going to apply, apply to you. But that said, if if all things are equal, if you sort of, you know, look at the it, it kind of distill things, um, I do think short fiction is much more complex in the sense that what's easier, broad strokes painting or cramped over something and trying to get minute, finite detail uh, for hours on end, this little postage stamp, uh, you know, piece of art that you're drawing. And I think mm -hmm. if you're equally, if you have equal facility in the broad can, you know, the big canvas stuff or the fine work, you're still, I think it would become quite apparent that the, that the fine detail work probably requires more brush strokes, more, more concentrated effort. Try to do anything slowly and carefully uh, is, is always going to be, like say, say physically, trying to lift weight really, really slowly uh, will cause in a very short period of time, your body to start shaking, uh, your nervous system will start overloading, where you can, you can pump out at a light, light reps, maybe for 20 minutes straight. And so I, I do feel like short fiction for me is far more complex because there's there's another factor. Just this is just simple physics, beginning, middle, end. And, and let's say you write a lot of short stories. Let's say you have you have a collection you're putting together. You're going to write twelve. That's twelve beginnings, twelve middles, twelve ends. And each mm -hmm. one, uh, to the worthies who have preceded me in this conversation, they have to be satisfying. Right. You're not just vomiting out. Okay, well here's this this vignette. No, no, no. You're you're putting you're trying to put together novels in miniature, and I have found that for me, it's far easier to get up on step, to shift into a gear, get the boat up on step, and to go for great distances with an idea and develop the idea. And then come back and do during editing, do, do fine work, which we, we have to do no matter what type of writing you're doing. But 12 beginnings, 12 middles, 12 ends, uh, and and they're all, they need to be satisfying. And for me, I try to lock them together in a, not necessarily a mosaic, but some kind of ramifying theme in the collection. I find that to be just a lot more, uh, if you just, if you just break down the elements that it takes to create a piece of art, far more, not only tedious, but there's far more, there's far more labor, physical labor and mental labor, uh, in it. Excellent. Uh, so I'll give Sean the, the last word here. The, the collection I believe comes out on the 1st of March. Yeah. March 1st. Um, in paperback and in ebook, uh, Sean, you can have the the last word for the anthology, and then we'll wrap up the interview here. Yeah, so I definitely encourage folks. I mean, this 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 I think is going to appear on March twenty fifth, right? Well, that's what. Oh, the show. Yes, yeah. that's what the yeah, yeah, March twenty fifth. Yeah. So uh, by that point, it'll be it'll been out for you know three or three or four weeks, but. I definitely encourage folks to take a look at it. There is a wide diversity of ideas, uh, you know, creativity, and and I think it's it's the best compilation of authors that I've been able to put together thus far. Even even you know, Mike Mike Williamson just mentioned Stephen Barnes. Oh. Stephen Barnes has a story in this story. Uh, John Mayberry has a, has a you know, has a, or in this anthology. John Mayberry has a story in this anthology. Uh, John Langan, um, you know, Laird Barron, obviously. Uh, you know, Mike uh, Williamson and and uh, Freddie Costello. Yeah. Uh, T. C. McCarthy, Great. and 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 then there's uh, 
you know, Martin Shoemaker, you know, has a really good hard sci-fi story in here. Maurice Broadus and um, and and Rodney Kalstrom has a really good Afrofuturism story. Um, so there's 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 a lot to like in this anthology. Weston Oaks, right, another former military, uh, you know, another veteran, has a really good story called "A Day in the Life of a Suicide Geomancer." Right. So there's like just like stuff that you really want to look at and read because it's 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 interesting. So highly encourage folks to to check it. I just put this thing together, uh, but the authors really bring out the the creativity and um, and really made the the conceits of the anthology or the, the central premise of the anthology work extremely well. And then if you haven't if you like this, uh, also check out the the predecessor um, anthology, which is uh, Weird World War Three, which unfortunately has been, you know, kind of turning out to be relatively prescient, um, you know, given what's, you know, kind of the Russian-Ukraine situation. But I'll I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, well, gentlemen, thank you for coming on the the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I thought we had a really really good conversation. And I, I hope the the viewers and listeners get uh, something out of it. And and pick up the collection and, and enjoy it. So thank you all. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be. A cobra. Johnny was quiet at dinner that evening, but in the Moreau household, one more or less silent person wasn't enough to change the noise level significantly. Seven-year-old Gwen, as usual, dominated the conversation, alternating news of school and friends with questions on every subject from how weathermen damp out tornadoes to how butchers get the back blades out of a brief hump roast. Jamie, Five years Johnny's junior contributed the latest on teenage high school social intrigue, a labyrinth of status and unspoken rules that Jamie was more at home with than Johnny had ever been. Pierce and Irena managed the whole verbal circus with the skill of long practice, answering Gwen's questions with parental patience and generally keeping conversational friction at a minimum. Whether by tacit mutual consent or from lack of interest, no one mentioned the war. Johnny waited until the table was being cleared before dropping in his studiously casual request. Dadder, can I borrow the car tonight to go into Horizon City? What, there isn't another game there this evening, is there? The other frowned. No, Johnny said. I wanted to look at some stuff out there, that's all. Stuff? Johnny felt his face growing warm. He didn't want to lie, but he knew that a fully truthful answer would automatically be followed by a family discussion— and he wasn't prepared for a confrontation just yet. Yeah, just things I want to check out. Like the military command recruitment center? 
Pierce asked quietly. The background clatter of dishes being moved and stacked cut off abruptly, and in the silence Johnny heard his mother's sharp intake of air. Johnny? she asked. He sighed and braced himself for the now inevitable discussion. I wouldn't have enlisted without talking to all of you first, he said. I just wanted to go get some information. Procedures, requirements, that sort of thing. Johnny, the war is a long way away, Irena began. I know, Mommer, Johnny interrupted. But there are people dying out there. All the more reason to stay here. Not just soldiers, but civilians, too, he continued doggedly. I just think, well, Dadder said today that there wasn't anything I could do to help. He shifted his attention to Pierce. Maybe not, but maybe I shouldn't give up to statistical generalities quite so quickly. A smile twitched briefly at Pierce's lip without touching the rest of his face. I remember when the full gist of your arguments could be boiled down to because I said so, that's why. Must be college that's doing it, Jamie murmured from the kitchen door. I think they're also teaching him a little about fixing computers in between the argument seminars. Johnny sent a quick frown in his brother's direction, annoyed at the apparent attempt to sidetrack the discussion. But Irena wasn't about to be distracted. What about college, now that we're on that topic, she asked. You've got a year to go before you get your certificate. You'd at least stay that long, wouldn't you? Johnny shook his head. I don't see how I can. A whole year. Look at what the Trofts have done in just three months. But your education is important, too. All right, Johnny. Pierce cut off his wife quietly. Go to Horizon City, if you'd like, and talk to the recruiters. Pierce? Irena turned stunned eyes on him. Pierce shook his head heavily. We can't stand in his way, he told her. Can't you hear how he's talking? He's already ninety percent decided on this. He's an adult now with the right and responsibility of his own decisions. He shifted his gaze to Johnny. Go see the recruiters, but promise me you'll talk with us again before you make your final decision. Deal? Deal. Johnny nodded, feeling the tension within him draining away. Volunteering to go fight a war was one thing. Scary, but on a remote and almost abstract level. The battle for his family's support had loomed far more terrifyingly before him, with potential costs he hadn't wanted to contemplate. I'll be back in a few hours, he said, taking the keys from his father and heading for the door. The Joint Military Command Recruiting Office had been in the same city hall office for over three decades, and it occurred to Johnny as he approached it that he was likely following the same path his father had taken to his own enlistment some twenty-eight years previously. Then the enemy had been the Menthisti, and Pierce Morrow had fought from the torpedo deck of a Star Force dreadnought. This war was different, though, and while Johnny had always admired the romance of the Star Forces, he had already decided to choose a less glamorous but perhaps more effective position. Army, eh? The recruiter repeated, cocking an eyebrow as she studied Johnny from behind her desk. Excuse my surprise, but we don't get a lot of volunteers for army service here. Most kids your age would rather fly around in starships or air fighters. Mind if I ask your reasons? Johnny nodded, trying not to let the recruiter's faintly condescending manner get to him. Chances were good it was a standard part of the interview, designed to get a first approximation of the applicant's irritation threshold. It seems to me that if the Troft advance continues to push the Star Forces back, we're going to lose more planets to them. That's going to leave the civilians there pretty much at their mercy, unless the Army already has guerrilla units in place to coordinate resistance. 
That's the sort of thing I'm hoping to do. The recruiter nodded thoughtfully. So you want to be a guerrilla fighter? I want to help the people, Johnny corrected. Hmm. Reaching for her terminal, she tapped in Johnny's name and ID code. And as she skimmed the information that printed out, she again cocked an eyebrow. Impressive, she said. Without any sarcasm, Johnny could hear. Great Point High School, Great Point College, Personality Index. You have any interest in officer training? Johnny shrugged. Not that much, but I'll take it if that's where I can do the most good. I don't mind being an ordinary soldier, though, if that's what you're getting at. Her eyes studied his face for a moment. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I'll tell you what, Moro. Her fingers jabbed buttons, and she swiveled the plate around for his scrutiny. As far as I know, there aren't any specific plans at present to set up guerrilla networks on threatened planets. But if that is done, and I agree it's a reasonable move, then one or more of these special units will probably be spearheading it. Johnny studied the list. Alpha Command, Interorum, Marines, Rangers. Names familiar and highly respected. How do I sign up for one of these? You don't. You sign up for the Army and take a small mountain of tests, and if you show the qualities they want, they'll issue you an invitation. And if not, I'm still in the Army? Provided you don't crusk out of normal basic training, yes. Johnny glanced around the room. The colorful, hollow sim posters seemed to leap out at him with their starships, atmosphere fighters, and missile tanks, their green, blue, and black uniforms. Thank you for your time, he told the recruiter, fingering the information mag card he'd been given. I'll be back when I've made up my mind. He expected to return home to a dark house, but found his parents and Jamie waiting quietly for him in the living room. Their discussion lasted long into the night, and when it was over, Johnny had convinced both himself and them of what he had to do. The next evening after dinner, they all drove to Horizon City and watched as Johnny signed the necessary mag forms. So, tomorrow's the big day. Johnny glanced up from his packing to meet his brother's eyes. Jamie, lounging on his bed across the room, was making a reasonably good effort to look calm and relaxed but his restless fiddling with a corner of the blanket gave away his underlying tension. Yep, Johnny nodded. Horizon City Port, Skylark Lines 407 to Airy, military transport to Asgard. Nothing like travel to give you a real perspective on the universe. Jamie smiled faintly. I hope to get down to New Perseus someday myself. A hundred twenty whole kilometers. Any word yet on the tests? Only that my headache's supposed to go away in a couple more hours. The past three days had been genuine killers with back-to-back tests running from seven in the morning to nine at night. General knowledge, military and political knowledge, psychological, attitudinal, physical, deep physical, biochemical. They'd given him the works. I was told they usually run these tests over a two-week period, he added, a bit of information he hadn't been given until it was all over, probably fortunately. I guess the Army's anxious to get new recruits trained and in service. Uh Uh-huh. So, you've said your goodbyes and all? Everything's settled there? Johnny tossed a pair of socks into a suitcase and sat down beside it on his bed. Jamie, I'm too tired to play tag around the mountain. What exactly is on your mind? Jamie sighed. Well, to put it bluntly, Elise Karn is kind of upset that you didn't discuss this whole thing with her before you went ahead and did it. Johnny frowned, searching his memory. He hadn't seen Elise since the tests began, of course, but she'd seemed all right the last time they'd been together. 
Well, if she is, she didn't say anything to me about it. Who'd you find out from? Mona Beale, Jamie said. And of course, Elise wouldn't have told you directly. It's too late for you to change things now. So why are you telling me? Because I think you ought to make an effort to go see her tonight. To show that you still care about her before you run off to save the rest of humanity. Something in his brother's voice made Johnny pause, the planned retort dying in his throat. You disapprove of what I'm doing, don't you? he asked quietly. Jamie shook his head. No, not at all. I'm just worried that you're going into this without really understanding what you're getting into. I'm twenty-one years old, Jamie, and have lived all your life in a medium-sized town on a frontier-class world. Face it, Johnny. You function well enough here, but you're about to tackle three unknowns at the same time. Mainstream Dominion Society, the Army, and war itself. That's a pretty potent set of opponents. Johnny sighed. Coming from anyone else, words like that would have been grounds for a strong denial. But Jamie had an innate understanding of people that Johnny had long since come to trust. The only alternative to facing unknowns is to stay in this room the rest of my life, he pointed out. I know, and I don't have any great suggestions for you either. Jamie waved helplessly. I guess I just wanted to make sure you at least were leaving here with your eyes open. Yeah. Thanks. Johnny sent his gaze slowly around the room, seeing things that he'd stopped noticing years ago. Now, almost a week after his decision, it was finally starting to sink in that he was leaving all this, possibly forever. You think Elise would like to see me, huh? he asked, bringing his eyes back to Jamie. The other nodded. I'm sure it would make her feel a little better, yeah. Besides which, he hesitated. This may sound silly, but I also think that the more ties you have here in Cedar Lake, the easier it'll be to hold on to your ethics out there. Johnny snorted. You mean out among the decadence of the big worlds? Come on, Jamie. You don't really believe that sophistication implies depravity, do you? Of course not. But someone's bound to try and convince you that depravity implies sophistication. Johnny waved his hands in a gesture of surrender. Okay, that's it. I've warned you before. The point where you start with the aphorisms is the point where I bail out of the discussion. Standing up, he scooped an armful of shirts from the dresser drawer and dumped them beside his suitcase. Here, make yourself useful for a change, huh? Pack these in my cassettes for me, if you don't mind. Sure. Jamie got up and gave Johnny a lopsided smile. Take your time. You'll have plenty of chances to catch up on your sleep on the way to Asgard. Johnny shook his head in mock exasperation. One thing I'm not going to miss about this place is having my own live-in advice service. It wasn't true, of course. But then again, both of them knew that. The farewells at the Horizon City port the next morning were as painful as Johnny had expected them to be, and it was with an almost bittersweet sense of relief that he watched the city fall away beneath the ground-to-orbit shuttle that would take him to the liner waiting above. Never before had he faced such a long separation from family, friends, and home, and as the blue sky outside the viewport gradually faded to black, he wondered if Jamie had been right about too many shocks spaced too closely together. Still, in a way, it seemed almost easier to be changing everything about his life at once, rather than to have to graft smaller pieces onto a structure that wasn't designed for them. An old saying about new wine and old wineskins brushed at his memory. The moral, he remembered, being that a person too set in his ways was unable to accept anything at all that was outside his previous experience. Overhead, the first stars were beginning to appear, 
and Johnny smiled at the sight. His way of life on Horizon had certainly been comfortable, but at twenty-one he had no intention of becoming rigidly attached to it. For the first time since enlisting, a wave of exhilaration swept through him. Jamie, stuck at home, could choose to see Johnny's upcoming experiences as uncomfortable shocks if he wanted to, but Johnny was going to treat them instead as high adventure. And with that attitude firmly settled in his mind, he gave his full attention to the viewport, eagerly awaiting his first glimpse of a real starship. Skylark 407 was a commercial liner, the majority of its 300 passengers, business professionals, and tourists. A handful, though, were new recruits like Johnny, and as the ship made stops over the next few days at Rajput, Zimbabwe, and Blue Haven, that number rapidly went up. By the time they reached Airy, fully a third of the passengers were transferred to the huge military transport orbiting there. Johnny's group was apparently the last batch to arrive, and they were barely aboard before the ship shifted into hyperspace. Someone clearly was in a hurry. For Johnny, the next five days were ones of awkward and not totally successful cultural adjustment. Jammed together in communal rooms, with less privacy than even the liner had afforded, the recruits formed a bewildering mosaic of attitudes, habits, and accents, and getting used to all of it proved harder than Johnny had anticipated. Many of the others apparently felt the same way, and within a day of their arrival Johnny noticed that his former shipmates were following the example of those who'd arrived here earlier and were clumping in small, relatively homogenous groups. Johnny made a few half-hearted attempts to bridge the social gaps, but eventually he gave up and spent the remainder of the trip with others of the Horizon contingent. The Dominion of Man clearly wasn't nearly as culturally uniform as he'd always believed, and he finally had to console himself with the reasonable expectation that the army must have figured out how to handle this kind of barrier a long time ago. When they reached the training camps of Asgard, he knew things would change, and they'd all be simply soldiers together. In a way, he was right. But in another way, he was very wrong. The registration foyer was a room as large as the Horizon City Concert Hall, and it was almost literally packed with people. At the far end, past the dotted line of sergeants at terminals, the slowly moving mass changed abruptly to a roiling stream as the recruits hurried to their assigned orientation meetings. Drifting along, oblivious to the flood passing him on both sides, Johnny frowned down at his own card with a surprise that was edging rapidly into disappointment. Johnny Morrow, Horizon, H.N., 89927-238-2825P, assigned room, AA315, Frere Complex, Unit Cobras, Unit Orientation, C662, Frere Complex, 1530 hours. Cobras. The transport had included a generous selection of military reference material, and Johnny had spent several hours reading all he could about the Army's special forces. Nowhere had anything called the Cobras been so much as hinted at. Cobras. What could a unit named after a poisonous earth snake be assigned to do? Decontamination procedures, perhaps? Or else something having to do with anti-personnel mines? Whatever it was, it wasn't likely to live up to the expectations of the past weeks. Someone slammed into his back, nearly knocking the card out of his hand. Get the fridge out of the road! A lanky man snarled, pushing past him. 
Neither the expletive nor the other's accent were familiar. You want the infaloop? Do it out of the fridging way! Sorry, Johnny muttered as the man disappeared into the flow. Gritting his teeth, he sped up, glancing up at the glowing direction indicators lining the walls. Whatever this Cobra unit was, he'd better get going and find the meeting room. The local time clocks were showing 15.12 already, and it was unlikely any army officer would appreciate tardiness. That was another installment of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Jedkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Josh Hayes and to Sean Patrick Hazlitt and the contributors to Weird World War IV. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>